Good morning. Good to see y'all. Hope for some of y'all who had spring break. Uh, hope you enjoyed that time and glad to see our Colorado missionaries are back, our Florida missionaries are back, and right? Yeah, back, right? Back? No, I'm just kidding. I won't make you feel bad. So we're glad everybody's here. Hope you had a good week. Hope you're ready for what God has got in store for us. I'm excited because uh, you can see behind me, we are not doing the, the preparation thing. We're, we're moving away from Joshua just for a little bit. Um, we are six weeks out from Easter. Easter's a little bit later this year. And so for the next six weeks, we're going to be going through this uh, series called Pilgrimage to Passover, uh, which is going to be walking through the last week of Jesus leading up to his crucifixion and resurrection to see what that means for us today. If you have your Bibles with you, I want to encourage you to make your way to the New Testament book of the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be in Luke chapter 19, um, and we'll be reading from a couple other passages, but if you've been here before, you know how that works. So uh, I don't know about you, but there's been things in my life that have been significant, things that I remember. I mean, can say that there are things in your life where you remember where you were and what you were doing when that happened. For example, who can remember where you were and what you're doing when you heard the news of September 11th? Uh, it, those sort of things that just, just get etched into our mind and our memories and things that just make an impact on us. Some of y'all may be here and you can remember those, the moment you heard that JFK was assassinated. Uh, some of y'all may remember when you heard that Elvis died. I can't. I wasn't alive then. But I do remember things like the Columbine shooting. I remember the thing about the Waco massacre uh, that happened uh, when I was in high school. And then, of course, 9-11. You know, significant moments in our life that, that impact us, that we talk about, that we remember when they come up. You know, we do that when we've lost loved ones. We, we talk about when we heard the news or when that happened. I'm sure there are things in your life, not just tragedies, but good things in your life that you remember when that happened. Remember when you met the person you are married to right now or the person maybe you're just infatuated with at this moment. Uh, you remember conversations you've had. Maybe you remember when your child or your grandchild was born and when you found out you were going to have babies or grandbabies coming. Uh, remember your marriage day. And if you're married, you probably should remember your marriage day, um, right? <laughs> So uh, we remember these things in our life. We, we, we store them up. And that's what we're going to be doing for the next six weeks is we're going to be looking through one of the greatest weeks in all of history to see what the Bible brings out that we should understand about this week. It is a week that has the potential to impact every individual on this planet and the vast majority of us that are gathered here this morning because it's the final week of Jesus's earthly ministry as he makes his journey to the cross. And we're going to be in Luke chapter 19 uh, this morning. We're going to primarily be going out of Luke this morning, but we'll look at some other things. Luke is known as the gospel. The word gospel means good news. So if you hear gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's what it means. It means good news. And it's good news because it's about Jesus Christ, God's only son, his perfect life, his sacrifice on the cross, his resurrection from the grave, his ascension into the glory and his promise that he's going to come back for his children and those who place his faith in, in him as their Lord and Savior. The Gospel of Luke is written by a man named Luke, hence that's where it's got its name. Matthew written by Matthew, Mark written by a guy named John Mark, John, John, Luke. I've got a few in the front row, front row, that's the A plus section there. Uh, Luke, Luke is a physician, we know that through uh, the scriptures. What kind of physician, we're not sure, but we're, uh, we know that he's aware of how bodies work and, and things like that, and so it's, it's kind of significant because he not only gives us the gospel bearing his name, but he's also the writer of the book of Acts. And the book of Luke and the book of Acts were originally letters, and they're basically a one, part one and part two. This is Jesus' life, and this is what people did after Jesus in response to Jesus. 
And they're all written to a man by the name of Theophilus. We don't know a whole lot about Theophilus, but both letters are addressed to him. And in addressing them in the opening of Luke, Luke tells Theophilus, this is how I've gathered all these resources. Now, we know in the book of Acts, at some point in time, Luke joins up with the Apostle Paul. He would become one of Paul's companions and disciples, one of Paul's entourage that he would travel with him. But because he is not listed anywhere in the Gospels as being a follower of Jesus Christ, he tells us in Luke chapter 1, in kind of the intro to his letter, in writing this man named Theophilus, saying that there are those from the beginning who were eyewitnesses and ministers of the world and have delivered them to us. So it seemed good to me also, having followed all the things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, meaning that Luke has gathered what we have in the gospel and what we have in the book of Acts from eyewitnesses. Now, why is that important? Because eyewitnesses can credit or discredit an event. So when Luke is writing, we have to keep this in mind, when Luke is writing the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, he's writing it in a world that lived throughout the things that Luke is writing about. So as they read what he has written, they can call it out whether that is truth or whether that is, is not truth, whether that is a lie. And, and that's what happened. That's why we have a lot of things in the New Testament because things would match up with what eyewitnesses said that happened. So they would throw books out. That's why certain books or gospels that you may have heard of aren't in the Bible because they didn't match the historical events or the evidence that we had. And so these eyewitnesses would be able to read Luke's account and be like, that, that's right. That's how it happened. That's, that's how it took place. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that because the gospel is such a message that is hard to believe that an almighty God for some reason would send himself through his son to redeem and rescue a fallen world doesn't make sense because gods don't do that. But this God is so loving. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if you're having struggles with understanding the gospel or believing the gospel, then you can go ask the eyewitnesses who have seen the gospel lived out in Jesus and see what they have to say and understand that I'm not making this up. And so Luke is doing the same thing. And so when you read through the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, we have these eyewitness accounts that the first century believers would have been able to say, yeah, that's happened. Even those who weren't believers, like, yeah, that is historically accurate. We're going to begin in chapter 19. We're going to begin in verse 28 of chapter 19. As we're looking at what is known as the triumphal entry uh, passage, also what has become known as Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter, and we'll talk about that here in a second. Beginning in verse 28 of the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 19, the word of the Lord says, And when he, he's referring to Jesus, had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them, and as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the ground. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Verse 40 answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, <clears throat> saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. 
What I'd like to do this morning is I'd like to kind of walk through this passage to understand what is going on, what the early readers would have understood, and what Luke was led to write by the power of the Spirit, and then deal with how is this meant to rebuke us, correct us, train us for righteousness, which we're told the Word of God does. And so beginning back in verse 28, we, we began our passage this morning about when he had said these things. And as you're doing a Bible study or reading the Bible on, the, on your own, if you jump into a particular passage, you run into key phrases and key words like therefore, or, and this is one of those. When he had said these things, we immediately need to stop and say, what things did he say? Because obviously Luke is led by the Spirit to tie the events here in the triumphal entry to what Jesus has just been recorded as saying that has some significance here. So that would take us back to the beginning of chapter 19, where we're told Luke is in Jericho and comes across a wee little man named Zacchaeus. And everybody knows the story, right? Zacchaeus climbed up a... Some of y'all did not get children's choir growing up, I can tell right now. So Zacchaeus climbed the sycamore tree to see what he could see. And all right, so Zacchaeus and Jesus, that event happens. Jesus comes to the trees and says, Zacchaeus, come down from there. I'm coming to your house today. And I had to do it. Anyway, and so Zacchaeus comes down. Zacchaeus was a tax collector, tax collector a very corrupt tax collector, he, he, which was normal in those days. Tax collectors would take more than what they were supposed to take. And Zacchaeus made a living off that. Jesus going to Zacchaeus' house, the tax collector, was not a thing rabbis or respected Jewish individuals would do because they were betraying the Jewish people. They were backstabbers. And Jesus goes to his house. He sits with Zacchaeus and all Zacchaeus' friends, which would have been other tax collectors and people pushed out of society. And in that little meeting and encounter, the Pharisees, who are the religious elite of Jesus' day, calls Jesus out and says, why in the world is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? To which Jesus goes on to tell a parable beginning in verse 11, known as the parable of the ten minus, which could be also referred to as the parable of the faithful stewards. We don't have time to unwrap the whole parable, but here's what Luke is tying to. In the parable, it is about individuals which the master has given uh, talents or, or minus that they're to take care of. And then the master comes back to find out that some of the servants have not been faithful to what the master has given them. What Jesus is pointing to is the Jewish people because the Pharisees are the one that called him out. He said, look, God has made a covenantal blessing and a covenantal promise with you that he would be your God and you would be his people. This goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. But the problem with the Jewish people is they have not been faithful to the covenant or promises of God. This is what the parable is drawing out. And so this leads up to what Luke is tying to, saying after he says these things, because as he comes to Jerusalem, these people have this expectation and a misconception of what the Messiah should be. And they believe Jesus is now coming into Jerusalem to usher in this, this worldly kingdom in, the, in the, the level of King David and King Solomon that the Roman Empire will be thrown out. And they're throwing a huge party, having this huge parade as they're coming in. But Jesus Jesus is fully aware of what is going on and what is about to take place and what this parade is actually for. It is a parade for his crucifixion. It is the celebration that the Spirit is moving upon the people, that they would move in the celebration that God's purpose, his, his will, the fruition of his plan through Jesus Christ is now coming into full picture and there needs to be a celebration for it. So Luke says, after these things, after Jesus is drawn out that God's people have not been faithful to God's promises, this event happens which God's people are now celebrating the ushering in of Jesus Christ. We aren't given much detail here in Luke, and we have to understand that the Gospels, there are some differences in the Gospels, and there's a reason for that. Is, is they didn't have a computer, they could sit down and type out megabytes and gigabytes of Word. They had so much room on paper that they were sending letters. And so they did as much as they could in there, much as the Spirit would lead them to, and then they would send those off to people. And so there's some things that the other Gospels have concerning this event that help us, that God has given us, to get a, a, a bigger picture of what's going on and, and the events leading up to this and why there's such a big crowd of celebrating. 
Well, if you go to the Gospel of John, in John chapter 11 and 12, what an event happens after Jesus goes to see Zacchaeus. When he goes to Bethany, he goes to Bethany because he catches word that that Lazarus has died. And so he arrives in Bethany to Mary and Martha, and they're all upset, of course, because their brother had died. But Jesus goes, not because he has died, but because he has fallen asleep. And Lazarus rises from the grave, and all the people begin celebrating. And so this is this crowd of disciples. That word disciple doesn't necessarily mean individuals who are learning from Jesus and, and wanting to learn more about God. It means followers. So Jesus has this huge crowd of people that have now seen this rabbi, this this anointed king, spend time with tax collectors and sinners. He has now risen someone from the grave. And of course, they're excited as he comes into Jerusalem because of this understanding that he is going to overthrow this Roman government. He's going to deliver us from slavery, which is what Passover was. That's why it's pilgrimage to Passover. As Jesus comes in, Passover is a celebration of what happened in the book of Exodus when God sent Moses, right? Sends Moses in to deliver his people from physical bondage, physical slavery from the Egyptians. Passover is a celebration of that. They had the Passover lamb and the spreading of the blood around the doorpost that the, the Spirit of God would pass over that house. And this is the event going on. So they're believing we now have a king that is going to deliver us once again as God did with Moses and the Israelites in our scriptures. And that king is Jesus. And so we're celebrating him. But they're not understanding Jesus did not come to deliver from physical bondage. He came to deliver from eternal bondage. The bondage of sin. The the thing that, that entangles us. And wears us down and pulls us down and slows us down and kills us and steals our joy, destroys us. And so Jesus is coming in with this massive celebration. People are excited about him meeting with tax collectors. They're excited about him raising people from the grave, which who wouldn't be? But in the midst of Jesus is fully aware of what is going on. And he tells his disciples there in verse 30, go into the village in front of you. Where you, on entering you, will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. You notice what he does. Jesus is the word of life, the living word. And notice what he does there. Go into the village. He tells his disciples, the word of God tells disciples where to go, what to do, what to look for, what to expect, what to say, and the results of following his word to the T. And when they do that, guess what they find out? Wow, the word of God works. It worked out exactly the way he said it. And that's something we need to take just from this small little passage in verse 30 through 33. That when God tells us where to go, what to do, how to act, what to say, what to expect, we can take that to the bank every single time because the word of God does not change. And so disciples find that. But why a colt or a donkey? What's up with that? And if you're reading from the King James, then um, you know a different word for donkey there. But uh, It comes from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. It's a prophecy. Zechariah 9, 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So this is all to fulfill just this one verse in Zechariah, a book I know that we all read over and over again because it's just so invigorating. But Jesus is fulfilling the word of God because that's what the word of God does. It is meant to be fulfilled. It's truth. And so they bring the donkey back. It happened just as as he said it would. They throw their coats on the donkey. That's just to allow him to ride on a little bit better. But then they start doing something strange. They start throwing their coats on the ground. Well, what's up with that? 
Because not just the disciples are doing it, but the crowd's beginning to get into it. And we've got to keep in mind, Bethany to Jerusalem is about two miles. Two miles. Two miles. There's a goat. There's a goat. This is not a fast-moving parade. This is going to take a while. And so for two miles, they're laying their coats down as he's going to Jerusalem. They're shouting praises to what is about to happen. We'll get to that in a second. The whole purpose of this is they are recognizing Jesus as king. This was an honor in laying your coats before the, the traveler, an honor of respect, an honor of showing that they are royalty, that they are prestigious. They are honoring Jesus as a king. But again, they have this misconception about what all is going to take place and what he is going to do. And the reason we can know that is because there's all this fanfare, all this excitement, all this anticipation and expectation about what's going to happen. But notice it only takes five days for them to change their mind. Five days. I spent two miles throwing my coat down. Five days later, I'm yelling out, crucify. Because Jesus didn't meet their expectation. Because Jesus didn't come to do man's will. He came to do God's will. And so they're doing this. And I, I can't, I mean, sometimes the Bible just gives us these moments to pause and just kind of place ourselves in that situation. And I encourage you to do that this afternoon, just to place yourself in the situation. If you were amongst this crowd, what sort of excitement you've been in? Because if you've ever been to a parade, Man, it's just the kids are yelling and excited and there's a bunch of anticipation going on. I can't imagine just the atmosphere. But as Jesus comes in, the Bible says very clearly, verse 37, as he was drawing near, he's coming to Jerusalem, already on the way down the Mount of Olives. Luke gives us this important feature that we can overlook is that from where Jesus was coming to, there would have to be a valley that they would have to go through in order to get to Jerusalem. And it may not seem that important to us at this moment, but as Jesus is coming down, what it tells us is we put ourselves in this crowd, Jerusalem is the focal point. And for the last several years, Jesus has been telling his disciples, those closest to him, the twelve, I'm going to Jerusalem to be crucified. In the last year alone, he's told them three separate times, I'm going to Jerusalem to be crucified by the hands of the Jews. And as he's gathering in and the crowd is, is celebrating and praising and worshiping, Jerusalem is there and he knows exactly why he is going. And yet he still goes. But it says he descended which for me this week was something just reminding what Jesus Christ did for us all. He's been celebrated as a king because he is the king, king of kings, lord of lords, but he also descended on our behalf. He came down to earth, fully God and fully man, and lived by man's rules. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 2 that we should have this mind among ourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here in this moment, we're given this picture of eternity that God stepped out of holy heaven to earth to save us. And even though we call this a triumphal entry, we have this image of what Jesus had to do is he had to descend. He had to come to us to save us because there's no way we as sinners can get to God on our own. We can't do it. You and I cannot be good enough. But in the midst of this, again, we turn to some of the other Gospels, the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Matthew, Tells not only were the crowds laying down their garments and singing these praises, but they're also waving palm branches, hence we call the Sunday before Easter Palm Sunday. And you look through Scripture, there's really no biblical significance to the palms except to elaborate what is said in verse 37. 
as they began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. This, this was not going to be a quiet procession. This is a very noticeable crowd, a very loud crowd that was that were singing shouts. Verse 38, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That, that phrase, the very beginning, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, comes from Psalm chapter 118. And in Psalm 118, the, the psalm is given and it speaks of a king that is heading to the temple of God, ready to give his sacrifice of thanksgiving to God and give him praise. And so the crowd, this is their mindset. The king is coming. He's coming to the temple of God. He's going to be giving a sacrifice of thanksgiving. So they're recognizing Jesus as a king. They were, they were giving him that honor that the psalm speaks of. But again, they, they didn't have the right conception of who he was. Loud celebrations. Well, the Pharisees were in the crowd too, and the Pharisees haven't always been keen on Jesus. And so they, they knew the word of God too, so they knew what the crowd was inferring when they, they shouted from Psalm 118. And so they asked Jesus to rebuke him. To look in verse 40, it says, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out, which is kind of a strange phrase. And it could be literal, it could be proverbial. But we know in Scripture, in several times, there are inanimate objects that would cry out as a witness, as an evidence to God against an offender. In Genesis, Abel's blood cried out from the ground against Cain. In Habakkuk, Babylon's sins cried out from the stones. In Isaiah, money cried out because of the ill treatment of the poor. The objects like the stones here in Luke were going to, as Jesus saying, is there going to be a witness to cry out to God against the offenses of the Jewish people that we're not going to recognize the coming of the anointed one, the coming of the Messiah. Finally, in verse 38, it says, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And if you remember the Christmas story, Christmas is coming, by the way. Um, it always is. I don't know. Anyway. Christmas story in Luke chapter 2, what the crowd is saying in Luke chapter 19 echoes what the angel said in Luke chapter 2, verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And what we have in the gospel of Luke is the coming of Jesus as a baby and the coming of Jesus to the cross is all wrapped in this idea of peace, which means harmony. It speaks of harmony with God. This is what Jesus came to do. He came to bring us back into harmony with God. And as he come in, comes into Jerusalem, he once again is bringing harmony with God. Well, the, the rebuke of the Pharisees and the response of Jesus, he goes on in verse 41, as he drew near and he saw the city, he wept over it. And that phrase there in verse 41 means that Jesus, despite this fanfare, despite the celebration, despite the palm branches, despite the coats going on the ground, despite the shouts of praises, Jesus was not overwhelmed by the moment because he knew what was happening. When he wept over it, it means that he had deep agony inside of him that was spilling out of him. It was a visible sorrow, which seems kind of odd with what is going on, but I kind of put in the idea of going to a funeral of a loved one or someone close to us. And we may have been fine when we you know, got closer to the funeral. Obviously, when we usually hear the news at first, it takes us by surprise. It shocks us. But if you're like me, when you've been in that situation and, and you're going through the funeral service, the graveside service, all the memories start to come back in your mind. All, the, all the, the sounds of laughter, all those things that have been etched in our mind start to overwhelm us and we become overwhelmed with tears. That's the image I have here with Jesus as he's coming into Jerusalem. He is overwhelmed by the memories of God's people. I imagine because he is the word of God, he's been from eternity, he remembered when God created man in his image, and yet Satan tempted them away from the presence of God. 
Imagine in this moment as he knows he's coming to Jerusalem through the cross, he remembers the calling of Abraham and the setting apart of God's people would be the Israelites. And yet they're constant fumbling around. I, I imagine he remembered the flood and what God had to do for sin in that moment, but it didn't take the full sin out of this world. And that's why he was coming. Imagine he remembered Moses and the Israelites and Joshua and all the stumbling and bumbling they did when they came into the promised land to this very city that he's now coming to and the judges. Imagine as he comes down into Jerusalem, he can remember David singing and dancing and somewhat streaking in the streets of Jerusalem. King Solomon building the temple and the people of God praising. I imagine he can remember the, the prophets coming to warn the people of God to turn back to him. Turn back to your loving father. He's going to bring judgment upon him, but he is merciful. You just have to turn back to him. I imagine he can remember people like Daniel and Nehemiah who remain faithful. And all these memories from the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, just overwhelming him as he's coming to this point to finally do what needs to be done to set things right. He was God in the flesh, and he was fully aware. Verse 42 and 44, kind of through 44, are some interesting statements that he makes to show his prophetic nature. What would you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace? Because that's what they're singing about. But now they are hidden from your eyes. What a sad statement to be in the presence of God and not know it. So for the days will come upon you and your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and will tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you. Jesus, right here in this moment, even though it's a prophetic, prophetic message of destruction, it's also a prophetic mes message of grace and hope in this moment because he's trying to open their eyes that are closed to understand what is actually happening. If he was the king that they were hoping that would set up a new kingdom of Israel, then would it not be an enemy coming to destroy them? So he's trying to awaken them one last time. But he says, but because you did not know the time of your visitation. In other words, you did not know when God's anointed one was in your presence. Jesus' message here in verses 43 through 44 is something that happened in 70 A.D. when Rome finally had enough of Jerusalem, enough of the Jewish people, and they came and leveled it to the ground. And this is what Jesus was warning them about. What can we get about this? There's four things I want us to see with Jesus and four things I want us to see about ourselves. And I'll do these really quick, I promise. First thing with the triumphal entry, one thing we see is that Jesus decided. Jesus decided. Jesus knew what he was doing and he knew exactly what was going to take place in the next couple days. He knew how the people would initially respond to him in celebration, be overwhelmed with excitement and emotion, and he knew that in a matter of days, they would change their mind. He knew why he was coming to Jerusalem on this particular day. And he knew what was going to transpire on this particular week. He knew that there were people in the crowd who would turn on him. He knew that there were people closest to him that would betray him and deny him. And he knew those that were even closer to him would crumble in fear and run. Yet it was Jesus that commanded the disciples to get the cult, and they found it exactly the way that he said it would be. It was that same Jesus had that same power and that same authority that willfully decided to give up his life voluntarily. Jesus decided. John chapter 10, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. Hear this. No one takes it from me but I lay it down on my own accord. No one was forcing Jesus to do what he was getting ready to do here in the next couple days. No one was doing it. No one had that power or authority. Any moment, because he was God in the flesh, he could have called it off. But Jesus decided you and I were worth it. Jesus decided he would go through it. And because Jesus decided, Jesus was also deliberate. 
He not only knew what he was doing, but he knew he was fully aware of what was going to happen. And he was deliberate not to hide it. If Jesus was to be a conquering king, what he would have done is he would have taken this crowd and he would have taken the momentum and take Jerusalem by storm right then and there because he would have had the crowd behind him. But he doesn't. This wasn't a victory parade. It was a celebration conducted by God to celebrate his son's obedience to die. This was a celebration of God's careful orchestration to redeem the world from sin. It was a crucifixion parade. Through Jesus' actions, one commentator writes, God has proved once and for all that he is indeed the God of love. So what was he delivered about? One, saving sinners. Early in his ministry, Jesus says, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus was deliberate about saving sinners. He was deliberate about showing God's love. In a conversation with one Pharisee who was at least interested in Jesus, and we know the Scripture says he eventually became a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus. Jesus said this, and you probably have heard this statement before, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, and whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world through Him might be saved. Jesus was deliberate to show God's love and is deliberate to show an example. First Peter tells us, For this you have been called, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might also follow in his steps. So Jesus decided, he was deliberate, and he was determined. He was determined to fulfill God's will in this moment. He was determined to save sinners. He was determined to be the image of God. He was determined to make God known. He was determined to fulfill the Father's wills. Jesus' heart, mind, vision were all set on what was getting ready to take place and he was determined to fulfill it. But what about us? That's nice about Jesus, but what about us? What does this passage have to say to us that God wants to train us, rebuke us, correct us in righteousness? And there's four things, and there's because there's four responses we see from people in this passage, and we all fall into this, this situation here. The first thing we see is that there are some who are aware. Verse 35 and 36. It says, And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set it on Jesus, and as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. They were aware that something big was happening. And that may be where you are this morning. You're kind of aware. You may not feel aware, you may not feel fully awake, but you're somewhat aware. Church is important. It's really important to some people. It may not be as important to me, but I'm aware there's some significance to it. Christianity is some significance. It does help some people in life, and so you're aware. But if you notice, aware doesn't really get us too, too far unless we allow our awareness to become an adoration. Some were aware and some were adoring. Verse 37 and 38. As he was drawing near, already on the way down Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. So they were not only aware, they had the evidence, they had experienced it personally. Saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And so they weren't just aware, they were adoring God. That's what this is about. This is a worship service. It is to bring glory to God for what God is doing, what God has done, and what God has promised to do. And so we praise him. We, we lift him up. Maybe that's you today. You're not just aware that you have a heart that is adoring God for the things he has done, for his faithfulness, even when things aren't going great. But there's also people in this crowd in the presence of God that may be here this morning, and they were at a loss. The Gospel of Matthew tells us in Matthew 21.10, the same event, that when he, Jesus, entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. Well, of course, there was this massive parade going on for two miles coming here. But they were stirred up saying, who is this? I mean, Jesus was just adored for two miles, praised, spoken scripture over, 
worshiped, people aware of his presence. And even in the midst of the crowd, there are people at a loss. Who is this again? And this may be you this morning. You're, you may be aware, but you may be more at a loss because you are at this point where why is this important? Why is this relevant? Who is this Jesus again? Why should I care? <clears throat> All this going on, there were some that witnessed it, what Jesus was doing, what he had done. There's some who had heard the stories, they had eyewitnesses there, and yet they still had no clue what it meant. And maybe that's you here this morning. You've witnessed the power of God. You've seen people praising the power of God. You've seen people worshiping and adoring. You see people aware of His presence and aware of, of God's presence in their lives. And yet you're at this point where you're like, why is this important? Glad it works for you, not necessarily for me. Here's the thing. Jesus is an historical figure. You cannot deny that. There's historical documents outside of the Bible that speak of Jesus of Nazareth who died at the hands of the Romans, persecuted by the Jewish people for some reason that is fully unknown, but he had a massive following, massive crowds. He, he had great teachings. He did miraculous things. Those things are historical documents outside of the Bible. Matter of fact, at one point in time, it is said there was more historical evidence for the proof of Jesus Christ of Nazareth than Abraham Lincoln, our 16th president. So you cannot deny there wasn't a Jesus. You just can't. That's just stupid. It's ignorant, okay? It is not historically factual. There was a Jesus. Here's where the faith aspect comes in, and here's where I'm, I want to get you from the at a loss moment. Okay, if he is real, which he was, and he did the things he did, and some things unexplainable, which historical documents outside the Bible say he did, then Jesus cannot be just a great teacher. He cannot be just a great moralist. He cannot be just a great prophecy, a prophet because the things he said would not make him great unless what he said was true. And he said, I and God are one. He said, no one comes to the Father except through me. And so if he is a great teacher, a great moral leader, a great social activist, a great prophet, that means what he has said and what has been recorded in Scripture as historically reliable has to be true. So he can't be just those things. He has to be more than those things. And instead of coming to church and hearing about Jesus and opening the Bible and being at a loss saying, who is this? You need to understand he is the son of God whom God sent down to earth to save sinners like us. That's who he is. He is the evidence that God is for you, not against you, and God loves you. That's who he is. He is the evidence that you and I cannot do anything on our own part to get to God, to work our way into heaven. That's who he is. And he offers this gift freely to all who would accept it. That's who he is. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. Now, Some of y'all hear this and you're already moving into the final part of the reaction to Jesus. Some of y'all, man, you've moved back to adore. You're not a lost more, you're adoring. Woo, praise Jesus. You ready for Jackson to come up and close this out? Where's Jackson, by the way? We'll pray for him later. All right. Some of y'all hear that. Instead of moving to your door, what you do is you move to the other end of the spectrum, and that is you abhor. And I had to use abhor because I wanted to keep with A's. You know, so aware, adore, at loss. Abhor means you, you come to this point of hatred and anger and disgust, and you're just ready for this preacher to shut up. And that's what the Pharisees were telling Jesus. Tell these people to shut up. Because we don't want to hear it. And the sad thing is there are people here today, right now, in this moment, that are at that place. You just want it to end because you want to get on with your life. Why do people do that? Well, verse 39, 
Pharisees said in the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Why did they say that? Because they did not believe. Why do people get so angry with God? Why do people get so mad about church and Christianity and Jesus Christ and sharing of your faith and things like that? Because they don't believe. They have no faith. And the Bible says, without faith, you cannot please God. Then there's others, when they hear that, and this is where the Pharisees are as well. It's not a lack of belief, but it's also a lack of control. People that are so mad at God because they want to believe, have a false hope and a false faith that they're actually in control. Because the world tells us we should be. I got TVs that can go to any channel I want. I got radio stations that go to any channel I want. I can download stuff when I want, how I want, right then and there. I can order and it can be here tomorrow. I'm in control of me. That's what the world preaches. The Bible shows that we have no control over situations. But there's a God who is in control. And the Pharisees were struggling because Jesus was a sign that they weren't in control. Romans chapter 1, verse 21 through 32, the Bible points out why people <coughs> wrestle with giving control over to God because that's what Jesus came to do. He did not come just to be the Savior. He came to be the Lord, which means master, which means boss. I mean, when I confess Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior, yes, I am saved, but I'm also declaring to him, you are now in control of my life. And some people don't want that. So we fall into one of these four categories. You're either aware, you have a heart of adoration, you're at a loss, or you're just angry. And it's all because of who Jesus is and what he represents. My question this morning is, who are you today? Where are you? Where are you when God calls you out of your sin? Where are you when we use that phrase, God stepped on my toes today? You just become aware of it? Or do you move into adoration that God would love you that much to care about your life that much? Or do you become angry? We're all in this pool today. And where we need to be is a place where we fully understand who Jesus is and to move into a heart of worship because the Bible says that is what God is seeking. Those who are worshiping Him in spirit and truth. John chapter 4. Where are you this morning? No matter where you are, you need to hear this. God loves you. You can be mad at God. Guess what? He's a big God. He can take it. But God loves you. John 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world. The world means you, means me. He gave his only son, his one and only son, meaning there was no other, there wasn't a plan B. God was all in with Jesus for you. That whoever would believe in Him. Again, open invitation. Would not perish, but have eternal life. And that may be where you are this morning. Is you need to accept God's love for you and invite Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. You know you mess up. You know you fall short. And you know you can't fix it because you're not in control. Would you be willing to come down and say, Pastor Mike, I want Jesus in my life. I want to be saved. Maybe you're here this morning and you've just been mad at God because God told you no or didn't answer the prayer the way you thought it should be answered. It's a very dangerous place to be and Satan likes to fuel that fire. Maybe you need to come before God and just kneel before Him and repent and to worship Him that despite your anger, despite your confusion and lack of understanding, He was still faithful through it. I don't know where you are, but this time responding, ask Jackson to come up and lead us. If you need to accept Jesus, here's the basics of the gospel, the good news. All of us are sinners. All of us. We all fall short. We all wrestle continuously with it. We stumble. We do things we don't want to do, and we don't do things we know we should do. That's gospel. God knows that about you. That's why he sent Jesus. The Bible says, when I believe in my heart and confess my mouth that Jesus is Lord, I will be saved. That's the firm promise of God. I will be saved if I believe in my heart and confess with my mouth. 
Confession means I need to let it be known. This is why we come to this point of invitation. If that's you this morning, you need to invite Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. I'm going to invite you to come. Again, if you are in this place, you just need to come and kneel before the Father. Understand, here I knows everything about you, so you're not going to surprise him. He's cool like that. But now it's time to respond. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Lord, thank you that you went through the fanfare, knowing it's going to lead to your death. Knowing that you were going to be beaten in such a way, the Bible explains it, that you were not even recognizable as a human being. And that was before they even put you on the cross. Father, forgive me when I made it something cheap. When I have not allowed it to impact me the way it should. And I pray over your people, your church, your bride. Father, you would forgive us when we become distracted by all these other little things. We fail to see we've been in the presence of God. You are worthy. I pray in this moment for those that are here and you know them by name, you know their heart and their position with you. If they're here and they do not know you as your Lord and Savior, they they do not belong to you. And yet you are calling them out in your love and your grace and your mercy for them to step out in faith to begin that relationship. But I pray your spirit brings such conviction upon their heart that they cannot stay where they are. And I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ who struggle like me. But Lord, we've made Christianity and our relationship with you something that it shouldn't be at times. We've all gotten angry. We've all been at a loss before you and ask for your forgiveness come before you and ask that you restore to us the joy of our salvation Father you move upon our hearts in a way that only you can let us be a people who love you and love the people of this world the way you command us to let us be a people who are worshiping you in spirit and truth Father, have your way with us in this moment. Do what you need to do. Lead us to where we need to be led. We ask this time be a time that gives you glory and you alone. Pray us all in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who alone is worthy. Amen. I invite you to stand. I invite you to come. I invite you to sing.